Let's open up our Bibles to the 145th Psalm, and I want you to hear this in a certain way. Uh, The Jewish people, and particularly Jewish men, would have sung the Psalms as a regular part of their life. And they didn't have hymn books back then, they just memorized everything, and their memories were really good. If you, if, you, uh, if you live as a Westerner who can write everything down and has your iPhone buzzing in your pocket to tell you when you're supposed to be somewhere, uh, you can't imagine how good the human memory can be because yours isn't that good. But if you go, for instance, to the Middle East, it is very common for a Muslim to have memorized the entire Quran, and that's a book as thick as our Bible. And uh, I have known several people, several Muslim people, who had the whole Quran memorized. They have a competition in Iran every year for different age groups, and they will sit and recite the entire Quran from memory. So um, the Jews would have had that kind of memory because it was it was a written culture, but functionally it was an oral culture because paper was hard to come by and not everybody could read. So they would have known the Psalms from memory. And they would have known them like you and I know the texts of familiar hymns because they sang them regularly. And I think the 145th Psalm, I think there's a case to be made that when Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount and he said things like, consider the lilies of the field, how they neither toil nor spin. And yet Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of them. Consider the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He was referencing in the hearers' minds this psalm of God's provision. And, of course, this is Thanksgiving coming up, and this is a celebration, one of our best celebrations we've got in America, a celebration of God's goodness and abundance, and we give thanks. People who don't believe in God find themselves giving thanks because of the abundance of provision. 145th Psalm, starting in verse 10. All of your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all of your saints bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and your glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting dominion, and your domain endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all of his words and kind in all of his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. And he also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. And let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Father, this morning we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to what the scriptures are saying to us. And that you would be 
gracious to us and give me the ability to speak a seasonable word that your spirit would come and inhabit this moment and minister to the hearts of your people. It's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. Uh, I believe that I said last week that one of the main uh, drivers of all of human life is a desire for the good. Basically, we all want to live a good life. We all are animated by some vision of the good life. We want to be happy. We want to have nourishing, stable, mutually beneficial relationships. We want to have healthy bodies. We want to have an abundance of resources, more than enough to meet our needs. We want to have interesting and productive and useful work to do. And we want adequate time for rest and for play. We want to sleep well at night and wake up refreshed in the morning. We want to live long and productive lives. And when our time comes, we want to have a good and an easy death without any pain or fear. And I think that if a fairy godmother came to us and offered us this sort of life with a wave of her wand, if we simply asked for it, I can't think of anyone who wouldn't say, yes, please, give me that kind of life. Give me a good and a happy life. Well, as Christians, we understand that everything which makes our lives not good arises from the corruption of the world that was brought about by sin. Other people sin against us, and they injure us, and they damage us in the process. We also sin and damage others. We even sin and damage ourselves. That's what drunkenness and addiction and gluttony and an inordinate love of money do to us. It's what pornography does to us. It's what worry and anxiety does to us. It's what entering into relationships that God has forbidden does to us. It, it damages us in addition to being sin against God. And then there's the natural evils in the world that the Bible also teaches us arose out of the introduction of sin into the world. Death is the biggest natural evil. It's the, the last enemy, Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians. But it's also all the non-human things that bring death. Things like famines and natural disasters and diseases of all their various kinds. And then sin compounds sin because unhappy men and women looking for a good life keenly feel what is wrong. And then Satan dangles something in front of them that seems to promise to improve their situation, to make their lives better and happier and easier. But, says Satan, the only way to go about getting it, this thing that I'm dangling in front of you that will make your life so much better, the only way to get it is to do something that God has forbidden us to do or to fail to do something that God has told us to do. And, and Satan says, you can just take a shortcut through sin and get the thing that you want. Just as an example, I... Um, I know two women who were not happy in their marriages. They're both professing Christian women, 
and uh, I was pretty well aware of their, the, their husband's issues, and they were not insubstantial issues. They needed to be dealt with, but their issues did not rise to the level of what Scripture would permit for divorce. And I also know both of the women's issues, and their issues were also substantial. In one case, the wife's issues were grievous, and the husband actually had the scriptural right to divorce her, but didn't. And both of these women just woke up one day and decided to divorce their husbands and walk out on marriages that were more than 20 years old. And they both felt perfectly justified because they simply couldn't imagine having a happy life while staying in their marriages. And it seemed to them that even God himself could not pull that one off. And since they couldn't get out of their marriages without sinning, they did what they thought would make their lives better and just sinned. Now here's the kicker. I don't think that Either one is actually any happier today. There's just a different kind of unhappiness in their lives. But two families are profoundly damaged, and the world looks at the church and says, don't tell me about how Jesus makes your life better. You're no different than us, and at least we get our Sunday mornings to ourselves. I told you last week that God wants you to be happy, and he really does. And the Bible asserts that their happiness, that our happiness rather, comes from knowing and obeying the law of the Lord. That's what Psalm 1 clearly teaches. But how does that work? How do we go to men and women who are deeply unhappy in their lives and the only way out of their unhappiness, they think, is to take steps that the law of God says that they shouldn't take? How do we assert to women like these two women that I mentioned who want to be happy, how do we assert to them that the way to be happy is to continue in the marriage, which in their experience is precisely the thing that is making them miserable? And that's just one example. We all face this in one way or another. All of your temptations to sin are exactly the same dynamic. God, I'm not happy, and this thing over here promises to make me happier, but you don't want me to go get it because I have to break your rules to get it. How can I possibly be happy and keep your rules? And then Satan will come up alongside of us and snuggle in and whisper in our ears, oh, but God, you're in the forgiving business, aren't you? And I know that if I go get the thing that you don't want me to get and then apologize, you'll forgive me. Well, in the Bible, that's called putting the Lord your God to the test, and you shouldn't expect any positive outcome from that. But, but is this all that the people of God have going for us, either being miserable or being threatened with being made more miserable? I want to say no, not at all. But I say this with a caveat. What I'm about to describe to you simply is not going to be possible to you unless you have resolved in your mind once and for all that Jesus and the offer of life with him in the kingdom right now is absolutely the best thing going. And you are committed to a life of genuine discipleship and the transformation of your life. You've you got to have that one settled before anything I'm going to say makes sense. That, that Jesus is actually the best way. 
and that the way he tells us to live is actually the best way. It is the way of human flourishing and happiness, and we can trust him. But if you're just what some people have called a, a vampire Christian, you only want a little blood now and again to meet your need for forgiveness so you can go to heaven when you die. Or if you're a consumer Christian who only wants God to assist you in your project of life enhancement, then this will simply not be possible for you. And friends, that's where a lot of the evangelical church is today. You can't do this and remain as you came into the world. You cannot do this in the way that most of us are right now. This is not a teaching for Christians who are not disciples. And that's not because God is mean. It's because you simply don't have the ability to dwell in the place that you need to dwell in, and you don't have access to the spiritual power that you need in order to pull this off, unless you're in an interactive life of discipleship with the Lord Jesus. It's like if you're blind and I tell you, you can't successfully drive a car, I'm not being mean. I'm not prohibiting you from driving a car. I'm telling you that even if you drive a car, you can't be successful at it because you're blind. You don't have something that you need to do that successfully. If you are not in a place of discipleship where the Holy Spirit is changing you on the inside and you are by a conscious act of your will pursuing the Lord Jesus as the main thing in your life, you're like a blind person trying to drive a car. You won't be able to do this. You just won't. Now, Let me take you back to a series of messages that I preached a little while ago, and I remember specifically that we were in the gym when I did this series, and the sanctuary was being painted, and I told you that the life of discipleship cannot possibly proceed until you have laid a foundation of death to self. To die to self, remember, is simply to come to a place where you do not consider it a tragedy when you don't get your own way. It's a place where you come to realize that you and your desires are no longer the center of your life and your ultimate reference point for life. You, you can't, you, you, that's what death to self is. It's not the cessation of self, it's to put self in a proper place in relation to God. Now it'll feel like you're dying because you're habitually on the center of your life and you're on the throne of your life. But a disciple will not think first about themselves and what they want, and they will care little, if at all, about getting their own way. To be dead to self is to abandon yourself and your will to God's will. Now, why in the world did I give this sermon the title, The God Who Satisfies Your Deepest Desires, and then turn around and tell you that the way to get there is to die to self and all your desires, which means to cease to think and believe that your deepest desires need to be fulfilled or you're not okay? Well, I say that because Jesus said that. Jesus said anyone who seeks to save his life will lose it. And anyone who loses their life for my sake, he says, will find it. And what Jesus is saying there is that the main dynamic of a life apart from Christ is to make myself and what I want the most important thing in my life. But you were designed to flourish only when God 
And what he wants is the most important thing in your life. And so Christ can't take his proper place in my life, sitting on the throne of my life, as is proper for his kingship, until I take my tinfoil crown off and climb off the throne of my life and bow to Christ. And crawling off the throne of my life will feel a lot like death. It will. And that's why it takes a move of the Holy Spirit even to be able to do that. The Christian who is not a disciple is terrified of doing that because he or she is scared to death that Christ will wreck their lives and will make them miserable. And so they try to have just enough of Christ in their lives to seem decent and appropriate without letting him have any real control. And to justify their position, they say to themselves, whether they admit it or not, they're saying to themselves in their heart, if God were trustworthy, he would give me the good thing that I need to be happy. And he'd do it without me having to break his rules. Why is it so hard for him just to give me what is obviously good and which I need in order to be happy? And the fact that he hasn't done that is proof that I can't trust him. And every temptation is really a question in disguise. And the question is, who do you love most and who do you trust? And every sin answers that question by saying, I love me the most and I trust me the most. Now the question is, do we have ample reason to love and to trust God when he hasn't yet given us the thing that we think we need in order to be happy? Is there any reason to trust him? Is there any reason to presume that he is good and that he's able to do the things that need to be done in our lives. Is there any reason at all? And that, friends, is where Psalm 145 comes in. Because in Psalm 145, it is, first of all, a proclamation of God's abundant goodness and kindness. And it goes in degrees as we go through the psalm. I'm not going to unpack it verse by verse for you, but we find in the psalm that God is, first of all, kind and good to the natural order to the created things, including lost people who don't know and don't serve God. Verse 9, it says, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. You ever thought about that? The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Verse 10, it says, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. Why would they give thanks? All your works, why would they give thanks? Because he's been so good. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Lost men and women have ample evidence of God's existence, his power, his wisdom, and his good governance of the world. That's what the Bible says. It says of the lost, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man 
In other words, this is God saying, the saints, the holy ones who know God, are going to speak of the glory of his kingdom and tell of his power in order to make it known to the children of man. All the world. To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. And so while we are fixated on the thing that we think we need in order to be happy and we're raging at God in our hearts because we can't find a way to get it unless we break his rules, we're like a spoiled teenage girl sitting in her room with more clothes than she could ever need strewn all over the floor, a car for her use in the driveway, which she did not buy, fed daily on food that she did not purchase and she did not cook, complaining with tears and sobbing to a friend on an iPhone she didn't buy and doesn't pay the wireless bill for, and she's complaining and crying that she's abused and her parents are horrid people because they won't let her go to a party on a school night. You ever know anybody like that? I'm so abused, says the princess, right, who has everything. Were you like that? I was. I wasn't a princess. I was a prince, but not that kind of Presbyterian. We can talk about that later. In other words, just by looking at her life, there is ample evidence of her parents' love and care and trustworthiness. In the very fact that she has the life she has, it's all manifest. And to call into question her parents' goodness because she can't have something that she wants is the sign of an immature and snotty person. But the psalmist here is making the same point. He's saying, look, look at the abundance that God has given on everything, even the lost. And he's making the same point that Jesus will make 900 years later. Jesus says, look, hey everybody, why are you so worried? God takes exquisite care of the created order. The birds of the air and the flowers of the field flourish under his hand, even though they're things of very little value, very little significance, very little importance. God takes exquisite care of the flowers of the field, which, is, which are alive today and tomorrow are thrown into the oven. God extends his providential care even to lost men and women who know at a deep and a profound level that he exists and he's good to them. He says he sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. Jesus says that he is kind even to the ungrateful and the wicked. And that will be part of the standard by which the wicked are judged. Is that God says, look, look at everything I've done for you. And you turn your back on and you rebel against me, and you hate me. Look at all I've done. What wrong have I done you, says God, that you would think of me this way? Look, open your eyes, consider, says Jesus, all of these things, and think about who God is and what kind of a being he is. But look, at his special care for his special people too, for his elect, for those who love him and fear him, as the psalmist puts it. The Lord is near to all who call on him in truth. 
He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. The Lord preserves all who love him. Oh, Christian, you who take the name Christian, become a disciple. Climb off the throne of your life. Crumple up your little tinfoil crown and bow at the feet of Christ and say, Master, I lay my will down at your feet. You are good. You are wise. You are kind. You are trustworthy. You won't wreck my life. You will bring it around right. And you will give me the desires of my heart. If you treat your enemies as well as you do, how much more will you be good to one of your friends? I want to close with a little thing that I've always enjoyed. This person writes, I used to think of God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of the things I did wrong so as to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I die. He was out there sort of like a president. I recognized his picture when I saw it, but I didn't really know him. But later on, when I met Jesus, it seemed that as though life was rather like a bike, but it was a tandem bike. And I noticed that Jesus was in the back helping me pedal. I don't know just when it was that he suggested that we change, but life has not been the same since I took a back seat to Jesus, my Lord. He makes life exciting. When I had control, I thought I knew the way. It was rather boring, but predictable. It was the shortest distance between two points. But when he took the lead, he knew delightful long cuts up mountains and through rocky places and at breakneck speeds. It was all I could do to hang on. And even though it often looked like madness, he said, pedal. I was worried and I was anxious. Where are you taking me? He laughed and he didn't answer. And I started to learn to trust. I forgot my boring life and entered into adventure. And when I'd say, I'm scared, he'd lean back and he'd touch my hand. He took me to people with gifts that I needed, gifts of healing and acceptance and joy. They gave me their gifts to take on my journey, our journey, my Lord's and mine. And we were off again. And then he'd say, give the gifts away. They're extra baggage, too much weight. So I did to the people we met, and I found that in giving, I received, and still my burden was light. I did not trust him at first in control of my life. I thought he'd wreck it. But he knows bike secrets. He knows how to make it bend to take sharp corners, jump to clear high rocks, fly to shorten scary passages, and I am learning to shut up and pedal in the strangest places. And I'm beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face and my delightful constant companion, Jesus. And when I'm sure I just can't do anymore, he just smiles and says, pedal. Heavenly Father, if anything I've said today is good and right, I pray that you would cause it to stick.
If anything I've said today is wrong or improper or bad, I pray that you would cause it to simply be forgotten. It is to you that we look and in you that we trust. In Christ's name, amen. stand and prepare to cut and sing. Every time I speak, I want to run to the ones in need. In the name.
You know, the difference between a Christian and a disciple is that a disciple is actually committed to learning from the Lord how to live their life as Jesus would live their life if he were them. But behind that commitment is something else, desire. And that's really where the issue is. That's where the rubber meets the road. Do you want that kind of life? And if you don't, I think it's okay. Be honest. You don't. Just be honest with yourself. You don't need to be honest with anybody else. We know, as Reformed Christians, we know that when there is a lack of desire for the good things which God says we should desire, we're not able to come up with that on our own. But he can change us. He does change us. He gives us new desires. And so the thing to do is say, Lord, make me want it. Change my heart so that I desire. And he will do that. He will put a little spark in there, and then he will fan it into flame. And you will start to want life in the kingdom with him because it's the best thing ever. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God the Father, and may the fellowship of his Holy Spirit rest upon you and abide with you both now and forevermore. Amen. We are dismissed. Thank you.